Okay, so before we get into the, today's message, let me just uh, do a quick review from last week. Uh, last week we were able to look at what happened to Moses after all the excuses he gave God uh, so that God would send someone else. What happened? He ended up going anyway, uh, right? And we found out uh, from that uh, text that none of Moses' excuses worked. Uh, because Moses ended up preparing to go back, was preparing to go back to to Egypt, um, and uh, as he prepared to go back to Egypt, the first thing he did was to one pay respects to his father-in-law and his employer and his boss Jethro. Right? Remember this from last week. And then, as he prepared to bring uh, his stuff, the, the first thing that he brought, or the first people that he brought, were his where is family? Uh, that's how we got into this discussion about how family is important in ministry. Okay, uh, how uh, God uses family in preparation for ministry. So hopefully that's clear. Um, and and even in that, uh, after Moses brought his family, um, the second thing that Moses brought with him was the staff of God. Uh, and and this time, if you if you you know notice it. Um, the Bible describes the staff as the staff of God this time, not the staff of Moses. Why? Because God has already taken over that staff. That, was, that staff was God's. And, and the, the, the purpose for that is to show us um, God's saving power. Uh, that we, as, as people of God, we should bring God's saving power as we go into ministry. And that saving power nowadays is not a staff anymore. It's what? The Bible, or what else? The gospel, that's what we bring. Uh, a lot of people bring their Bibles, don't know the gospel. Uh, <laughs> so know the gospel. That's the staff. That's God's saving power nowadays. Okay, It's not a staff anymore. It's the actual gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as you go into ministry, bring your family and bring the gospel. Right? Uh, hopefully that's what you got from last week's uh, message. Um, so uh, we'll, we'll pick it up. We'll pick up our story from there. So after uh, the Bible talks about how Moses bring, brought his family, brought the staff of God, what happens next? We'll pick it up here. Verse 21. <clears throat> Verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. So Moses was supposed to perform all these miracles, the three, remember the three signs, right? What were the three signs again? The staff turning into a snake, the land turning leprous and then being healed, and then water from the Nile turning into blood. He was supposed to perform those miracles in front of the elders so that they, may, they might come with him, they might, you know, they might join him, and then he has supposed to, he's supposed to perform it in front of Pharaoh as well. Right? That's what God is telling him to do here. Perform or do the miracles that I, get, I put in your power in front of Pharaoh. But look at the but there. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Verse 22, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, 23, let my son go, and he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. 
So right now we're going to focus first on the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Why would God tell Moses, go perform these miracles, but I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart that he might not let the people go. Now this, this, this whole theme, this whole topic of hardening Pharaoh's heart is an ongoing and important topic in this book, in this Exodus. Um, it teaches us that the importance of God's will and sovereignty when it comes to the events that happen in Scripture. Okay, uh, I might lose some of you here, but if I do, uh, just ask questions later because this is a, this is the, there should be a sermon here by itself. Uh, but I'm not going to do a sermon on this because it's just too it's too complicated. Okay, to explain. Um, if you want to know more about it, let's talk. Let's talk about it one on one. But for right now, all I'm going to say about this is that this this hardening of Pharaoh's heart uh, teaches us the importance of God's will and sovereignty. Uh, when it comes to the events that happen in Scripture. Uh, in fact, uh, Pharaoh's hardness of heart, okay, just in the book of Exodus, uh, was mentioned about 20 times, okay? Uh, whether it be Pharaoh hardening his own heart in Exodus 8.15, or God himself hardening Pharaoh's heart in Exodus 4, or uh, Pharaoh's heart hardening without a specific person doing the hardening in Exodus 7, uh, verse 13. So this, this, this hardening of Pharaoh's heart is um, an ongoing theme, an ongoing topic here in this book. Now the point uh, for mentioning Pharaoh's hardened heart, or the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, uh, is that uh, Pharaoh's decision not to let the Israelites go it's not only God's will being done, but also Pharaoh's will being done. Okay? Say that again. When the Bible talks about Pharaoh's heart being hardened by God, at the same time, the Bible talks about Pharaoh himself hardening his own heart. It talks about how this, 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 this choices that Pharaoh's about to make, he didn't make it all on his own, although, yes, he did make the choices, but it was all under God's sovereign will. Okay? He didn't just, God didn't make him do it, but God was still in control even while he did it. Did you guys, you guys get that? Okay? It's, it gets complicated. That's what I'm saying. That's why you have to pay attention. Okay? Uh, let me read to you a uh, commentary uh, by Riken. He comments that, God not only knew that Pharaoh would refuse to let his people go, but he actually ordained it. He knew it, God knew it, and ordained it. But that doesn't mean that Pharaoh didn't actually choose not to let God's people go. He still made the choice. Although God's sovereignty over it and God's ordaining of it was also there. You guys understand? Okay. Pharaoh made a choice. Okay? In other words, we as human beings, we make real choices. The choice of you coming here. Okay. This morning, when you woke up, you thought about it. Okay. Some of you thought about it when they signed up. 
Should I go to church on Sunday? That's a choice. Right? What am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? What am I going to... All those things are real choices. But they are all under the sovereignty and ordination of God. Not to the point that God made you wear what you're wearing this morning. Do you, do you get what I'm saying? Okay? He didn't say, hey, put on some jeans and some... You're going to church. No. Uh, that, not to that point. But to the point that he knows. <laughs> he knows what you were going to wear before you wore it. He knows what you're going to put on before you put it on. He knows what you're going to eat before you eat it. He knows that you're coming here today, last week. You get what I'm saying? Right? He ordains it. He's sovereign over it. But you still make real choices. Okay? That's what happens um, here in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. So, just, just to clear it up a little bit more. God is not controlling okay, each and every choice that we make on a day-to-day -day basis. He doesn't control it. Um, but even the choices that we make, along with everything else that happens in this world, is ultimately governed by God's sovereign and eternal will. You get that? If you don't get it, come approach me after the service. Okay? There's no reason why this is, I said this is complicated. Okay? Um, SR Driver uh, observes, and again I quote, the means by which God hardens a man's heart is not necessarily by any extraordinary intervention on God's part. It may be by the ordinary experiences of life operating through the principles and character of human nature, which are of God's appointment. So your choices are not necessarily influenced by God himself. It might be the way you were brought up. It might be the way you're feeling today. It might be, you know, your character. But even those things, okay, are of God's appointment. Because why? God is the one who created so the way you're built up, the way you're wired, that's all God. And you use those things now to make choices. So God doesn't necessarily make the choice for you, but he has his hand in it in a little bit, in, in, you know, in a sense. You get what I'm saying? <clears throat> so, <clears throat> so when the Bible talks about <clears throat> How God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh would refuse to let the Israelites go. It doesn't mean that deep down Pharaoh wanted the Israelites, wanted to let the Israelites go, but God stopped him from doing it. <laughs> That's not what it means. It's not like Pharaoh's wired that way. Like Pharaoh wanted the Israelites, so okay, I'll let them go. No need for plagues, no need for you to kill my firstborn son. I'll just let them go. And God said, no, 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 I'm going to harden your heart. That's not what happened. Pharaoh himself was wired, was created, not to let the Israelites go. So you can say that 
What Pharaoh did was according to God's will. Because at that point, God doesn't want him to let the Israelites go to begin with. <laughs> Do you get what I'm saying? Right, some of you are looking at me like... <laughs> right? God didn't want him to let the Israelites go to begin with. But the fact that he's wired that way means that, yeah, God, he was going along with God's will. But it was his choice. Right? We, have to, we have to get this because um, we cannot say and look at the extreme of God controlling everybody's choices. Because then that takes away accountability from men. It's not my fault if God wants me to, you know, kill the person beside me. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That takes away accountability from men. But that's not the way God designed us. We are designed autonomous to make our own choices. But those choices are all ultimately under God's sovereign will. So that in the end, whatever God wants to happen is what will happen. No matter what choice you make. <laughs> I like seeing people's faces. <laughs> right? Remember the, uh, the illustration I used for this before? <clears throat> Uh, who knows uh, Efren Bata Reyes? Uh, Efren Bata Reyes. The greatest pool player ever. <laughs> Period. <laughs> okay? Greatest pool player ever. Right? Efren Bata Reyes would do shots that even the commentators can't, don't think about. He sees angles that other people can't see. That's why he can call a shot and make it happen, right? So when he says, I'm going to shoot this ball and I'm going to make three balls go in, he'll make it happen even before it happens, okay? He was sovereign over the whole pool table, let me say that. But the balls, they're still going to do what they're going to do. If it gets hit this way, it's going to go that way. Or if it gets hit this way, it's going to go this way. The balls are still going to do what they're going to do. But Ephraim is so good, he's so sovereign over it, that he can call it before it happens. God's sovereignty is the same way. Even though, yes, he knows what's going to happen. He knows everything that's going to happen. And you guys get to make your own choices. Whatever choice you make, it will end up under or serving God's sovereign will. We really can't mess anything up. <laughs> Do you get what I'm saying? It's hard to explain this, okay? But that's what's happening here in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. God doesn't necessarily, you know, take Pharaoh a good guy and make him bad. He was already wired that way to begin with. He was just going according to God's will. Okay? <laughs> I don't want to spend any more time on this. But that's, that's what's happening here. Right? Again, when the Bible says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, so that Pharaoh would refuse to let the Israelites go. It doesn't mean that deep down Pharaoh wanted to let the Israelites go, but God stopped him from doing so. Why? We can't read it that way because that would make God sadistic. 
right? Why, why does it make God sadistic? What was the reason why God doesn't want Pharaoh to let the Israelites go? What's, what's the reason? So he could show his power through the plagues, right? Now, if Pharaoh was this good guy who wanted to let the Israelites go and God stopped him from doing so, so that God can display the power or his power through the plagues, that makes God sadistic. Right? Because he ended up at the end of the whole plagues. What was the last plague? The killing of firstborns. If God did that, you know, if Pharaoh wanted to let the Israelites go and God stopped him from doing so hard in his heart, that would make God sadistic. But that's not who God is. Deep down, Pharaoh himself chose, because of his hard heart, not to let the Israelites go. And because of this choice, both the Egyptians and the Israelites would get to witness the awesome power of God through the plagues. Now, why did God design it that way? Why did God use these plagues, use these miracles in order to rescue the Israelites? Simple reason, right? So that none of the Israelites can say, Oh, Moses got, out, got us out. Or we got out ourselves. No. No way. <laughs> it was through these miraculous signs that God got them out. Which means that it was only God who could get them out. In the end, it was only God who gets the glory of what happened in the Exodus. Right? So, um, it was Pharaoh's choice. Uh, Pharaoh's choice, God already knew what it was, governed it by his sovereign will, but it was still Pharaoh's choice not to let the Israelites go. And again, for the reason of God displaying his power through the plagues. What else? I believe that it's also to show or to for us, the readers, to see the extremeness of God. I'm going to use that word. I know there's no such word, extremeness. The extremeness of God that I would argue is displayed in this passage and throughout Scripture. That God is extreme. Okay, That's the title of our mini-series. Extreme God. God is extreme in all that He does not just here in Exodus, but I would say all throughout Scripture. Right? Now, our challenge this morning is for us to understand, by God's grace, why God is the way He is. Why is He so extreme? Okay. First example of extremeness. Check it out. Uh, Exodus four, twenty-two and twenty-three. <clears throat> It says that you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. Now, by the way, that's another sermon right there. We'll, we'll, we'll do that some other time. Let my son go, free my son, that he might serve. God saves us so that we may serve. I just sit. Yeah, that's a separate sermon. But uh, wait for that one. It'll come. <laughs> All right? 
let my son go that he might serve me. If you refuse to let him go, what happens? I'm going to kill your firstborn. <laughs> Extreme. They, they hold God's son, Israel, for, for like, like, you know, like a slave, the, the Egyptians. But God's reply is what? If you don't let them go, I'm going to kill your firstborn son. Extreme, right? Although God already knew that Pharaoh was set to refuse the release of the Israelites from slavery, because of Israel being God's firstborn son, God threatened Egypt by saying that if you don't let my son go, I will kill your firstborn son. The question is, why so harsh? Why so extreme? Why the harshness of the plagues when it, when it comes to Egypt? Did God really have to go to such an extreme for the freedom of the Israelites? Did he? Let me ask you a question. What if somebody kidnapped your child and then put them to slavery? Happens nowadays, right? Sex slaves children being kidnapped, being bought by people to become sex slaves? What if that was your child? What would you do? <laughs> How far would you go in order to save your child? Right. Um, I'm a movie guy, so I use movie illustrations. Uh, have you seen Taken? <laughs> right? Remember Taken? Liam Neeson? I have a set of skills that can... You remember that, that line? <laughs> I will come and hunt you down if you don't let my daughter go. Taken, right? Remember? He was willing to go through extremes, and he went through all kinds of extremes if you watch that movie. Have you guys seen John Q? You haven't seen John Q? Denzel? His child was sick. He brought him to surgery. Hospital said... Well, we can operate on him, but it's going to cost you a whole lot of money, which he doesn't have. So he can't beg, 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 please save my son. Hospital's like, no, you need to pay. So what did Denzel do? He held the whole emergency room hostage. <laughs> Remember? John Q, have you seen Prisoners. With Hugh Jackman. All right? this is, he's not just Wolverine. <laughs> right? Their kids were kidnapped. Remember in prisoners? Their kids were just walking down the street and they knocked on this RV and all of a sudden they were gone. What did they do to get their kids back? How far would you go to the extreme if your child was in that situation? Calling Israel his firstborn son sends to us that message that God loved his own so much, love so great, that God would be willing to do pretty much everything in order to rescue them from Egypt. Including hardening Pharaoh's heart, sending the plagues, 
killing firstborns. But then again, if you think about it, wasn't that the mission of Christ himself as well? Right? Think about it. Write in comments. And I quote, The work of Christ is to bring the slaves of sin into the liberty of sonship. Christ came and died so that those who are slaves of sin may become sons of God. To rescue them from slavery, God went to the extreme again with Christ. Right? This time, he didn't kill the firstborn of anybody. He killed his own firstborn. Well, holy begotten son. right? He went to the extreme again. Right? That was the mission of Christ. The Spurgeon writes, and I quote, The Lord Jesus comes, identifies himself with a enslaved family, bears the curse, fulfills the law, and then on the ground of simple justice demands for them full and perfect liberty, having for them fulfilled the precept and for them endured the penalty. When Christ died, who got the benefits? We who were freed. By faith, right? The book of Exodus shows us just what kind of father God is. He's not like our own human fathers. God loves to the extreme and will go to the extreme in order to care for and protect his children. Or we can say that God's actions are ruled by who he is. Right? And because the Bible says that God is love, then his actions must reflect that. How much does he love? To the extreme. To the extreme of sending his own son to die on the cross as a sacrifice, as a substitute for us to be saved. Those of us who believe. Right? He went to that extreme. Now, this next part of our story gives us another perspective on God's extremeness. Okay, What's the next part? Let's read it. 24 to 26. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, the bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now, I mentioned this last week. Those of you who were listening to the message last week, I brought this to your attention, and I hope you took time to look at it or at least read it and hopefully think about it. Um, now, as far as reading and interpreting this passage, it's pretty straightforward. Okay? I'm going to paraphrase the passage for you. Okay? The paraphrase of this passage is this. God sought to kill Moses. But Zipporah, Moses' wife, saved Moses. How? By circumcising one of Moses' sons and touching Moses with the cut-off foreskin with her son's blood on it. That's what happened. Moses was traveling. They stopped over a lodge. At the lodge, God was already waiting for Moses so that he could kill him. What happened next? Zipporah, his wife, all of a sudden, 
ran to, to one of her sons, cut off the foreskin, circumcised one of his baby, one of her babies, and then touched the feet of Moses with the foreskin and blood on it. That's what saved Moses from the wrath of God. Now, after reading a bunch of commentaries, articles, I even asked Pastor Luis. I saw Pastor Luis uh, a couple of days ago or two weeks ago, and I asked him, hey, Pastor Luis, what do you think about Exodus 4? Um, at that time, he just told me, oh, just keep reading it over and over again. It'll come to you. <laughs> Thanks, Pastor. <laughs> and then yesterday, I saw him again at the Nanai Bioli's birthday. And he's like, okay, I got three observations on Exodus Four. I'm like, oh, three, that's good. I only have two. <laughs> so, um, I'm going to share with you my observations. I'm going to kind of put in Pastor Luis's observations along with, with it, okay? Um, but again, after reading a bunch of commentaries, even asking Pastor Luis about this, the answer to the question, why would God do this, is pretty unanimous. Okay? Why would God kill the person, the man he has called to save his people from slavery. Well, why would God do that? Um, again, after asking people, it's pretty unanimous. God sought to kill Moses because Moses did not circumcise his sons. Okay? You read that in the context. The first thing that his wife, Moses' wife did, was to circumcise one of his sons, right? So, just by that, looking at that, you would think that that was the reason. Right? Now, I have my own views on it, different arguments on it, but I'm not going to get into it. Let's just say, because of the context, because of the way it reads, that, that was the reason. Because Moses did not circumcise his sons. That's why God was so angry at him that God sought to kill him. Okay? Now, why is that? Why is circumcision so important to God? That God would go to the extreme again to kill the man he has called to rescue his own people from slavery in Egypt. Why would God do that? Right? Let's put it into perspective. When Moses was called by God in the burning bush and said, you know, Moses, Moses, come rescue the Israelites, Moses gave God five excuses, remember? But God never once said, if you give me another excuse, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> never once said that, right? God just kept giving him answer upon answer upon answer. Even after the fifth excuse, God was so gracious with Moses, I'll even give you Aaron to help you out. That was a call from God to go rescue the Israelites. Why was God so patient then? Now all of a sudden, because Moses didn't circumcise his kids, God was going to kill him? <laughs> Why so extreme? What is it about the right of circumcision that made God react this way? First, 
is because circumcision was the distinguishing mark of God's people. At that time, after Abraham, right? After the covenant with Abraham, God said to Abraham, this is the mark. Circumcise your sons. That's the mark of God's people. It is the sign of membership, a proof of sonship when it comes to the Israelites. Ignoring this fact is akin to mocking the very covenant that God made with Abraham. If you didn't do it, you're like saying, well, you know what, it's not important to me. But for God, if you know who God is, he is very serious when it comes to his covenants. When it comes to his promises, he's serious. And the mark for it is equally as serious. So if you don't do it, that's like you uh, mocking his covenant, the very covenant that God made with Moses. And again, if God's actions are ruled by who God is, and if God is love, then mocking the covenant of God uh, that God made with Abraham out of his love for his chosen people requires an extreme response. Right? Now, Pastor Luis at this point also said, um, I'm going to share his answer with you guys as well. Moses, okay, not circumcising his kids didn't do what a father was supposed to do, which was what? Secure, or not secure, but bring his kids with him when it comes to salvation. Okay? It's true, right? If the circumcision was a sign of sonship in Israel, and Moses didn't do that to his kids, that means his kids are not sons. They don't have the mark. They're not, quote unquote, saved. Moses didn't do his job. That's why God was so angry with him. If, if God so loved his people that he was willing to sacrifice his own son, then you, you take that and you, you put that on Moses, and Moses, what are you doing? All you have to do is circumcise. You didn't do that. That's why he was so angry with Moses. That's why the response was extreme. I'm going to kill you. <laughs> now, secondly, Neglecting his spiritual responsibility as a father by failing to include his sons uh, in God's salvation. This is pastor's point, pretty much in the same point that I'm using here. Um, God was so angry at Moses because he neglected his spiritual responsibility as a father to include his sons in salvation that circumcision points to. And it's again, it's a mockery of God's covenant of love for his chosen people. Why is that so relevant? Why is that so relevant for us today? Does this mean that actual physical circumcision of our children is a matter of life and death? Is that what this verse is talking about? Quick answer, no. Why no? Because God's salvation is no longer marked by the physical act of circumcision. 
That's not the mark anymore. Of the new covenant. What is the mark of the new covenant? <laughs> What's the mark of the new covenant? Come on. <laughs> the mark, the mark of the new covenant. There's a couple. <laughs> Baptism. Lord's Supper. Okay. This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Okay. But I would argue that this part is... Um, relevant for us because of baptism. Okay? Um, for a lot of Christians, baptism is not that important. It doesn't save. And it's true. Baptism does not save us. But what does it signify? Right? What does it signify? Check out Colossians 2, 11 to 13. It says here, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. How does that happen? Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So the sign of circumcision has now been changed to that of baptism. It's not just one part of your flesh circumcised, your whole body has been cut off from this world. When you profess faith in Christ. How does that happen? You die to this world in baptism, it's you get Put under the water, and then with that, you're also risen with Christ to eternal life, right? That's what baptism signifies. Now, if you think that baptism is just, oh, it's the first act of faith for the believer, then that's not enough. <laughs> because for God, if circumcision was a matter of life and death for God, and he was willing to kill Moses to prove his point that, hey, you didn't get your kids circumcised? You didn't, you didn't do what you're supposed to do? You didn't include them in the salvation that I have promised Abraham? You have to die. <laughs> and how important is baptism? If that is the pointer to circumcision that was done in the Old Testament. Very important, right? So who here have been professing Christians, because I know a lot of these people, professing Christians who haven't been baptized. I know a lot. Right? Why? Because the definition of Christianity is just, oh, I know God, I believe in God. Done. No baptism. Uh, apart from baptism, also includes you in the body, right? As a member of the church. 
A lot of people don't want to get baptized because of that. They don't want to submit themselves to the authority of the church. That's why they don't want to get baptized. That's a separate issue. Here, God is talking about, no, this is the sign of the new covenant. If the sign back then was circumcision, he was willing to kill Moses, what do you think? Has God changed nowadays when he said, you know, that he says now, oh, you haven't been baptized? It's, it's okay. That's not what saves anyway. No, it's equally as important. Right? A mark of God's salvation nowadays is baptism. The New Testament is baptism. And again, notice, I said that baptism is the mark of the salvation of God, not the actual salvation of God. Faith in Christ, as Colossians mentioned, is the actual salvation of God. And being baptized in Christ marks that salvation. It's like... Um, it's like in a wedding, okay? When you, what makes you married? The fact that you're wearing a wedding ring? Or the vows that you made during your ceremony? It's the vows, right? It's, who cares? Some of you don't even wear your rings. You're married people wearing your rings. I know you wear your ring. You wear your ring every day. You don't take off your ring. <laughs> yeah, Alex will get his ring tattooed if he, ha if he has to. <laughs> but who are you who's married who's not wearing, who's married not wearing your wedding rings? Does that mean you're not married? <laughs> no, right? What the vow is what's important. But you still <laughs> need to show people, hey, I'm married. Where are your rings? <laughs> Some of you. <laughs> but that's what baptism is. But a lot of times it was, it's given too, uh, you know, too little of importance. Um, especially in, in evangelical circles that, hey, you know what? I haven't been baptized, so what? <laughs> but look here. <laughs> God was willing to kill Moses because of the same issue. Right? We better think about that. Right? Now the other reason that circumcision is relevant for us today, so that's one that's one you know, that's one importance. Why is the circumcision relevant for us today? Is because it shows it's the mark of God's salvation. What's the other reason? The other reason that circumcision is relevant for us today uh, is because it shows that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Hebrews nine. 22. Moses was about to be killed by God when Zipporah touched him with the blood of a substitute, namely his own son. Because we could have said, hey, it was Moses' fault that he didn't circumcise his sons. He should be the one to pay for his mistakes. I even argue that Moses himself might not be circumcised. <laughs> right? Because never mentioned, there's, never, there's not a mention of it in Scripture. I think that's why God's really angry at him. <laughs> because he himself is not circumcised. But let's, again, let's just, that's just to the side. 
right? <laughs> Leave that to the side. Uh, let's just stick with, he didn't circumcise his kid. That's why God is angry at him. So why would God, you know, have, not have Moses pay for his, for his own sins? Because that's, that's, God, that's the way God designed salvation to be. Substitutionary, right? That somebody would come and save you because your blood is tainted with sin. And and and, and if you if you notice that the blood that was used here is that of a child. Somebody innocent, no well, supposedly no sin, having committed sin. That's what saved. Moses, not himself, but the blood of somebody else. And when that was done, when Zipporah did that, only then was Moses saved from a certain death that God placed on him. Again, this example shows us that the blood of the sinner cannot cleanse sin. It is only by the blood of the innocent one with no sin, can sin be cleansed. And that is what God does for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. God sent his one and only son to be the substitute for us on the cross because his blood, the blood of a righteous man, is the only blood that can satisfy the wrath of an angry God because of sin. And it's only by God's grace that whoever believes whoever looks to and calls on the name of Jesus, will be made like him, and the redemption that Christ purchased will be applied to those who would believe. That's the gospel. Because we can't do it, and we're not able to, because our blood is tainted, can't save ourselves, God had to send somebody who is pure and perfect and holy and righteous to die the death that we deserve. Right? So this seemingly complicated and mysterious part of chapter 4 is not as complicated as it may seem. Right? It reveals to us that the only way to salvation um, and, and shows us that the extreme anger and justice of God because of sin and God's extreme love for his children met at one crucial point in history. And that is through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ becoming the only way of salvation for those who would believe. If God is extreme, he is extreme justice, extreme wrath, he's also extreme love. And those two met at one point in history. The cross of Christ. So that the anger and wrath of God was poured into Christ, same with God's love and mercy and grace, that those who would believe in Christ might be saved. That's the extreme God that we love and serve today, the God of justice and wrath because of his holiness and purity. He's also the God of grace and mercy because of his great love. Sure, God's hatred of sin is so extreme that lying is punishable by death. But, because God is also love, 
and his love is also extreme, the same God that was willing and able to go to great lengths to the point of sending his own son to die on the cross for our sake in order to satisfy the requirements of the law and therefore save us, those of us who will call upon the name of his son. That's our God. Extreme, yes. But extreme in, so, in such a good way. <laughs> Especially for those of us who who believe. Amen? Now I know you got a lot of questions. I know you still got a lot of questions. But after this, I'll be here. Let's talk about it, right? But right now, hopefully that's what we get from this complicated part of, of Exodus. That God's extreme love is that. It is extreme to a point where he was willing to kill Moses. But also extreme in another way where he was willing to send his own son, send a sacrifice to save. Amen? Okay. Keep reading Exodus. Keep reading chapter 4. And then come back next week, hopefully. You know, um, I'll see you again next week. So bow down our heads. Let's pray. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you. Just unto you and be gracious.